ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. In 1961, an Australian woman named Nell Law snuck onto a Danish ship that was heading to Antarctica. Nell's husband was a polar explorer and scientist and she wanted the chance to see the place he'd been telling her about for so many years. Nell was herself a painter, and she also knew that there'd be sights and colours to paint in that vast, icy wilderness that were unlike anything else she'd ever seen. So she became a stowaway and ended up as the first Australian woman to set foot on Antarctica. Rachel Mead has had her own adventures in Antarctica, but she was astonished to discover this forgotten predecessor. So Rachel has turned Nell's story into a novel called The Art of Breaking Ice. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Sarah. So tell me, how on earth did you first hear about this amazing story of Nell, the stowaway artist? Well, I just came across it by complete accident in a book that I happen to be reading on Antarctic art and artists that have been trying to put Antarctica onto the page. And there was a gorgeous colour plate of a painting that had a huge iceberg and it was emerald green with these little tiny penguins dotted along it like Morse code. And I was struck by the painting and then looked down at the caption and in the footnote at the bottom of the page, it just said that this was a painting by Nell Law, the first Australian woman to go to Antarctica. And I was just completely floored because I had never heard her name before. And as somebody, I've considered myself a bit of an Antarctic tragic. I've done a lot of reading and research um, on Antarctica. And as a feminist, I, I had never heard her name. How did you begin to try to find something out about her? Where did you go first off? Well, I immediately just Googled her. And at that point, there was just a very, very brief few lines on Wikipedia. And it just listed her as the wife of uh, Dr. Philip Law and gave a little bit about um, the fact that he'd been the director of Anari from 1948 to 1966. And And then uh, right at the bottom, it said that she was the first Australian woman to go to Antarctica and uh, and that she'd stowed away to get there. And immediately my writer's antenna sort of started to tingle. (laughs) (laughs) So, well, well, before we get to Nell and her extraordinary story, tell me a little bit about the man who was the focus of that Wikipedia entry, her husband, Dr Philip Law. Why is he important? Well, I find it really surprising that he's not more famous because, you know, we immediately, when you think of Australian explorers in Antarctica, we think of uh, Sir Douglas Mawson, but Phil Law was actually responsible for Australia's permanent presence down there. He was a physicist and so he went went down just as a general expeditioner in 1947 and then with, within 12 months he was the director of Anari and he led um, about, well, 18 years' worth of expeditions. Some years he, there were, he went down there uh, a couple of times. Rachel, what does the, the acronym Anari stand for? So... Today we have the Australian Antarctic Division, 
But before it became the AAD, it was ANARI, which is the Australian National Antarctic Research Expedition. And what sort of director was Phil Law? Basically, his vision was uh, responsible for moving Australia's presence in Antarctica from one of just sort of um, territorial claims and exploration into Australia establishing and maintaining uh, a permanent uh, presence down there in terms of the three stations, uh, Mawson, Casey and Davis, and he oversaw Australian move into the the situation uh, with the Antarctic Treaty. So when the Antarctic Treaty came into force in late 1961, Antarctica uh, became, for all of the 12 signatory nations, a place of peace and uh, the free access and trading of scientific information. So basically it became a land of science rather than of uh, sort of territorial claims by the uh, various nations. And when you say, Rachel, that, you know, he's not as well known as some of those other explorers, is it because he, you know, there were no disasters? Is, is that the fault of him that it right. went too well? You know, if people had died on his watch, he would be very famous. But no, under his leadership, all of the expeditions were incredibly successful and um, he was responsible for exploring and uh, mapping the really significant uh, stretch of Antarctic coastline and also exploring into the interior. So he's won basically every polar award that is on offer. Um, He's been recognised in Commonwealth honours lists and, yeah, just um, remarkably uh, well appreciated, but only amongst people who really know about Australian Antarctic history. So what do you know about um, Nell and and Phil's story? I mean, do you know how they met or, or when they were married? They were engaged before the war. Uh, Nell uh, was at university. Uh, she'd won a, a scholarship to um, to study at Melbourne Uni and she'd previously been trained and worked as a teacher. They met at a dance and apparently uh, they were very swiftly, within a few months really, um, they were engaged. But then with the onset of World War II, they um, they decided to to wait. But then it became clear as the war dragged on they were going to be waiting a very long time. So they decided not to not to wait until the war had ended. So were married and and feel very swift. He was teaching at Melbourne University and was sort of uh, was offered a position uh, going down to do to do some work. Um, I think he was looking at um, magnetism and auroras down there and um, and then very swiftly discovered that that was yeah. Uh, that was the career for him and he uh, moved up the ranks very swiftly. Well, you say that, you know, they didn't want to to have to wait too much longer to get married, but there was a lot of waiting uh, from Nell's point of view in their relationship, given the amount of time he would spend down in Antarctica each year. I mean, how, how often was he away from home? How much time did he spend away from their home together in Antarctica? Well, even though he... Uh, went down there every year from 1947 to 66, I believe. He didn't overwinter. He only stayed down there for the summer months. But over that summer season, that would uh, that would be from basically oh, October to March. 
each year. And when he was off in in the Antarctic, what was Nell up to? I like to think of her as reveling in her freedom, but but I think that might be um, a little bit presumptuous. But yeah, she was. Uh, they didn't have children. But uh, she was a very gifted painter. So in those months of the year, she would um, start to take her painting a bit more seriously. And was she written about in newspapers at the time, Rachel? Oh, it's a bit sad, really. She was called Australia's longest-suffering Antarctic widow. Oh, gosh. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> so by the time uh, she uh, she went down there, uh, Phil had been down in Antarctica working for 12 summer seasons. So for 12 years, five months of the year, she was on her own. And that was because back then no women were allowed to work in Antarctica. All of the expeditioners were men and the ones who would overwinter, they were down there for up to 15 months at a stretch. Phil would return with interesting things from his time spent in Antarctica. What were our Nell and Phil's dinner parties famous for? Um, before the mid-90s, when the Madrid Protocol came in, which was the piece of legislation about Ant- uh, the protection of, of Antarctica, it was really common for expeditioners to sort of supplement their meals with a bit of Antarctic wildlife. So every year Phil would come back with with cuts of meat that were, yeah, quite astounding. So he would bring bits of seal and penguin back and um, and then Nell would stage these elaborate Antarctic feasts. So you, you saw this footnote about this, this woman and all of you, all of your senses was interested in her and her story. Once you'd exhausted what was available in Wikipedia, how did you set out to find out more? Well, I started internet research to begin with, and there really wasn't that much. Um, but the few leads that I was able to tease out led me to the National Library in Canberra, where uh, they have in their special collections, Australian Antarctic history is one of the their major categories of interest. So when uh, Phil died in uh, 2010, he bequeathed all of his papers uh, to the National Library and it turned out that he had, because of his incredible career, there were 100 archive boxes of material, Phil Law's segment of the Australian uh, history, Antarctic history collection is the largest. So I, I went to the National Library and It turned out that one of those 100 archive boxes contained material on Nell Law. What was it like to come upon that box? How did you know? Was it straight away? Was it labelled, this is Nell's box, or how did you discover it? (laughs) No, no, no. It was just the, you know, it was labelled, you know, with this archive category. And But I lifted the lid off and there are these beautiful, sort of very clean, pristine envelopes in there. And just sliding them out, it's a very, it was a, oh, it was a very visceral experience. And inside one of those envelopes was Nell's diary from her uh, Macquarie Island and Antarctic journeys. And oh, it was beautiful. It had this marbled cover, and I flipped it open, and she'd written it all in green biro, and there was her handwriting. And yeah, it was what? a. It was a very special experience. Absolute and jackpot. Did you let out a little squeal? Did the librarians come running? Or how did you react? <laughs> 
Oh, well, I could, um, there was definite um, racing heart (laughs) situation, yes. You never know, really. You read the list of what's meant to be there and just um, hope and pray that when you slide everything open, um, that what you hope is there um, is actually there (laughs) and that it contains, yeah, the material that you really, that you want to be reading, yeah. So you just mentioned, Rachel, her trips to Antarctica and to Macquarie Island. Tell me about that. She made two journeys as a stowaway. So the very first one was at the end of um, 1960 and she went to Macquarie Island, which is a really significant time to have gone because it was only the year before that Australia had changed its policy on allowing female scientists to go to Macquarie Island. Up until the end of um, 1959, the only women employed by Inari were secretaries and administrators at the headquarters. So the policy had changed the previous year and four uh, female scientists had gone down. Macquarie Island is this this remote island about halfway between New Zealand and, and Antarctica. So yes. how did she stow away? Well, apparently Phil had sort of raised the question of taking Nell down, um, you know, as, a, as an official passenger in the past and had uh, been told no. And he, he was basically thinking not only is it really unfair that Nell year after year is left at home. And um, up, and at that point, you know, no one had been down for as many years in a row as Phil Law. So, um, so she really was at that stage the longest suffering Antarctic widow. But because Phil was the expedition leader, he had, uh, he had a cabin that had two bunks, but he was in there on his own. So he knew that she wasn't going to be taking space that, um, you know, would otherwise go to an expeditioner. And so he was very keen for Nell to go down and and just see what it was that kept him going back year after year. So that that first time, basically, he snuck her on board. But because there were other women already going down there, um, yeah, it didn't. It it really it didn't it didn't leak to the papers or anything. They managed to keep it um, completely on the down low, <laughs> and and Nell absolutely revelled in it. She didn't suffer from a skerrick of seasickness or anything. She um, she did lots of work down there. She and it was the first time she'd ever left the country. <laughs> so this was her first sort of overseas trip, and she she absolutely adored it. So. When um, when they got back, she got back at a, I think in December 1960, and basically said, "Right, <laughs> um, oh. I'm, I I really want to go on the next one." And so together, uh, she and Phil sort of hatched the plot for her to um, to do exactly the same thing, but go to Antarctica, which, which was a bigger deal because there was a very strict at that stage no women allowed policy. Why was that, Rachel? Why was there such a strict no women policy in Antarctica? What threat did we pose? No, it was, you know, all of those terrible old assumptions about not being strong enough, being too emotional, not being able to, not being able to handle it. And also being too much of a distraction for the men, that there were no facilities down there. They just basically didn't feel that women were um, sort of up to the task of being equal partners in expedition work. 
And that really didn't change in Australia. Australia didn't amend its policy until 1973. Yeah. So as you're reading her diaries of this first voyage to the Southern Ocean and the plans for this this next feat where she wanted to go all the way to Antarctica. What's what's the tone like? What kind of person emerges from her diaries? Well, she was actually quite nervous about it. She wasn't afraid of the journey. She was afraid of heights. Um, and and she was a bit nervous, I think, about the impact of it for Phil's, on Phil's career as well. She realised that this time uh, there, there probably would be ramifications uh, for on his career for going down there. Whereas um, I think Phil, by that stage in his career, he um, had spent so many years uh desperately fighting for funding to bring his vision of Australia as a a world-class scientific facility into being and, you know, having to justify every decision and being uh, told that he couldn't have as much money as as, uh, he potentially wanted. Um, I think there was a a little bit of... um, you know, rebellion in him that he sort of wanted to. Oh well, look, if you won't, if you won't give me the the money that I'm that I really need, then I'm just going to. I'm going to bring Nell. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, yeah. so it was a bit of a rebel in him as well. As they're planning, or she's thinking through this attempt to to go all the way to Antarctica. What sort of lists is she making in her diaries about the things that she'll need to bring? What was she packing for such a such oh, an adventure? The lists were, um, yeah, they brought me so much joy. She was really taken with this newfangled uh, fabric called nylon, which, <laughs> which was, um, and she was very excited about the fact that it, it was going to be so quick dry so she could just, you know, do her washing in the, um, you know, in the basin and hang it out to dry. She was also uh, banging up against the the fact that the clothes and provisions that she needed were not made. I mean, there was no there was no such thing as a female expedition wear back then. So she was having to either wear men's clothes for the you know the big um, insulated jackets and pants and things, or sort of make do. Um, there are the photos that I have of her on the ice. It looks like she's wearing little sort of Dunlop sneakers, but <laughs> <laughs> but I do know that she took golf shoes down there. Like feel. He was having to uh, advise the uh, the female scientists that were going to Macquarie Island for about their the gear that they needed to take as well, and so there were no boots for women for that those sorts of extreme environments. So he recommended golf shoes because they had the little you know bobbly cleats on the bottom for a little bit more traction. Honestly, as somebody who's tried to walk on ice, I I cannot imagine trying to make that work with golf shoes on. Oh, my goodness. When voyages into the Southern Ocean were being made back then in, in the 1960s, were they on Australian ships, Rachel? Uh, no, the Anari basically chartered Danish ships. And what was what was Nellen and Phil's plan? I mean, were they going to have to let this Danish crew know that she was coming on board or were they going to try to keep it secret from everybody? Well, Phil did leak it to the captain. So the captain was in on the plot 
and um, and also was uh, was open to it. There were he didn't have any any arguments with it, and I'm pretty sure he probably let the crew know just so that when um, when they're sneaking all of <laughs> Nell's baggage on board in the dead of night, that there are no um, no eyebrows being raised there with the crew. But the uh, the expeditioners were certainly in the dark about it. And the other people that they were keen wouldn't find out were were the press and politicians. But how did that go wrong? How how was this plan, this secret plan to be a stowaway discovered before she took off? She was she knew that she wanted to use the opportunity for art. So she went around and um and she was collecting all of her art supplies and sort of this is the height of summer. So she was having to ask for um for winter clothes and winter and um art supplies that wouldn't freeze in the height of summer and um, it started to raise eyebrows and apparently very swiftly got back to a journalist that, oh, Phil Law's wife is shopping for um, for thermal underwear. You know, what's going on here? And so it was her shopping practices that really um, unfortunately spilled the beans and at the very last minute uh, a journalist contacted the Department of, of External Affairs, which was the government department responsible for um, Australia in Antarctica, and, you know, what is your comment on Phil Law's wife uh, going to Antarctica? And they were, oh, what? That's <laughs> so unfortunately just, just uh, it was hours before they were due to set sail. Nell had already snuck all of her gear on board in the dead of night beforehand and pulled all of his clothes, all of Phil's clothes to the front so that if anyone looked in the in the cabin that they wouldn't see any of her um, underwear or sort of brightly coloured scarves or anything. It was just by pure chance that the Minister for External Affairs happened to be on board the ship having a tour of it it was uh, Senator Gorton who later became Prime Minister, um, but Phil realised that the cat was out of the bag. Phil just came to him and said, look, this is what's happening. I really want Nell to come with me. She's either going to have to, you know, be bundled off the ship and it's going to look really bad or, um, yeah, you can give us, uh, you know, please, can we have your permission? And he he took pity on them and said, yep, that's absolutely okay. If anyone asked, you can say that you have my official approval for it. At the very last minute, um, they sailed. Senator Gorton gave his approval and she she was allowed to stay. How was that reported on in, in the press at the time? Oh, there was a huge controversy about it. She was in to begin with, in blissful ignorance about all of it because, um, yeah, sailing away, that was all. <laughs> she was um, apparently Phil did receive a few cables to say there's going to be a bit of a, a media storm uh, when when you return. But there were um, there was a huge controversy back home uh, while while she was down on the ice that. And uh, there were questions to Parliament and there were news stories. Um, yeah, it was... Uh, uh, and basically the um, people were very concerned about, um, you know, a woman being alone on a ship with 70 men. It was it was all a bit shocking. So it was her, were, her safety or the morality or just it was an improper thing for a woman to do? Was that the the atmosphere of those descriptions? 
they were quite reserved. It was a, you know, much more conservative time. And even though she was a married woman, um, it certainly raised a lot of eyebrows. I think they were concerned about the the impact on, for the men. Like, how were they going to cope <laughs> with well, having to, with a woman down there? Oh, my goodness. As you say, <laughs> Nell was blissfully unaware of this as she's just chugging southwards on this on this Danish ship. How did she describe that journey and, and her first impressions of this extraordinary continent? She was completely taken with the uh, just astounding beauty of the place. And because she was a visual artist, she was uh, just so aware of the colours and the, um, yeah, her descriptions were, were just delightful, really. Uh, coming across icebergs for the first time and um, her descriptions of the different um, forms that they took and she was sort of delighted and appalled by the wildlife. I think she had a bit of a delicate nose and felt that penguins and seals were, yeah, um, they, um, in her words, they reeked. So <laughs> her journal is uh, was really delightful in that way, yeah. And what sort of work did she create there? What sort of drawings or paintings was she able to do while in Antarctica? Oh, she did so much work while she was down there in every form. So there were pen and ink sketches and watercolours and um, oil paintings and in situations where she wasn't able to uh, to work in the form that she wanted to, say, um, you know, because it, it is... Um, getting set up for, so with watercolours, it was very problematic because uh, the water freezes <laughs> and the paint sort of, you know, sticks your paintbrush to the paper and oil paints are, you know, it's it's not an easy thing. There's, you know, there's wind and rain and sleet and uh, so she, in situations where uh, the weather wasn't ideal, she would uh, sketch and then make extensive notes on colour and form. And then she would work on those when, when she got back. So by 1964, she had enough work for a, a, a full solo exhibition. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Find out more about Conversations podcast. Just head to abc.net.au slash conversations. Rachel, I've never been to Antarctica, but I imagine it as a world of white. Is that what it's like? Yeah, when you're down there, it's, um, to begin with, it is very, um, it's like there are only three colours in the world. There's blue and white and black, um, the black of the, the mountain and rock. But uh, after a few days, you, you're, you start to get sort of acclimatised to, um, to the strangeness of it, of it all in a way. And then you're able to see the, uh, the variations of shade within uh, the blue and within the white. So, um, yeah, when you, when you think about ice, it isn't just white. There's like an entire spectrum of white in a way that goes all the way from sort of um, deep purpley indigo sort of right through uh, to sort of more warmer tones. So, yeah, it, it is really surprising how much colour is down there. How long was, was Nell in Antarctica for? 
Uh, well, she stepped onto the Antarctic continent on the 8th of February in 1961 and they returned in late March. What kind of interest was there in her once she returned to Australia after making this historic and slightly forbidden trip? <laughs> well, they before they got back to Melbourne, they were very, very worried about um, her, the reception. They thought that... The, the the controversy would keep raging and that and I think Phil was um really ready to lose his position um as a result of it. But surprisingly, the by the time they'd returned, there was so much interest in in her being on the ship and um to the extent that it complete for the I think for the first time ever, it was Nell who overshadowed Phil. <laughs> there was <laughs> the press were just fascinated by how she coped with being the only woman amongst around seventy men on the ship. Yeah, so basically <laughs> she they, was the star um, of the show. She really was, and, and it, it seems like she was sort of forgiven by officialdom as well because they named a ship, an Antarctic ship, after her. Yes, that's right. Another of the sister ships in that Danish family of ships, the, the Nella Dan, was named after her. So did she make any return visits, Rachel? No, no, she didn't. Uh, I think they, uh, Nell and Phil sort of decided they'd pushed it far enough um, with that one journey, but she continued to paint Antarctica and she also, even though Australia didn't change its policy on women going to Antarctica, you know, for um, another 12 years, uh, she did have a legacy in terms of helping other women in her situation. So she started the Antarctic Wives and Kinfolk Association and uh, which was an organisation that uh, that supported the families of expeditioners who were doing it tough for months at a time at home. And that organisation still exists today. You said that this was her first trip uh, out of Australia. I mean, talk about doing things with a bang. Did she go (laughs) elsewhere in her later years, her and Phil? Yes, uh, she definitely got the travel bug after Antarctica. She and Phil went to places like uh, Mexico and Norway and while her health uh, held out, uh, they they travelled widely. And I I think in a sense she did return to Antarctica because where are her ashes? Yes. Nell died in 1990 uh, and uh, Phil died in 2010 and together their ashes have been taken back down to Mawson Station and they're um, interred down there, which is a huge honour and I think um, speaks to the um, enormous an important legacy the laws have in terms of Australian Antarctic history. It really is just such a a wonderful story and astonishing that although she was so well known and celebrated at the time that it it kind of got lost in the in the decades since. So Mm. I want to know Rachel about your own experiences of this wild icy place. How did you first get the chance to go to Antarctica? I first went down there, oh, it's nearly 20 years ago. I was working as an environmental campaigner and I'd been 
fascinated by Antarctica ever since I was small and reading those, um, you know, those adventure stories of Scott and Shackleton and Amundsen. And I'd just been fascinated with, with Antarctica for a very long time. And I got the the opportunity to do a course in uh, in Antarctic studies at the University of Canterbury in Christchurch, and oh, and and I just I just got my dream job working as a climate campaigner for Greenpeace, and it was one of those oh, what do I do? And the the um, the the thing that swayed me um, was that the course involved a couple of weeks of um, going down on on being on the ice in Antarctica and camping on the ice sheet for a couple of weeks. And so, yes, I gave up the dream job and, yeah, made the decision to to go and, and study for, um, yeah, four months in New Zealand and then and get the chance to go to Antarctica. So this invitation to camp out on the ice, what's that? feel like? What's the air like in, in a freezing place like that? It's very otherworldly. Down there, it's so cold that the air doesn't hold a great deal of moisture. So you can see so far. It's like you're wearing the world's most incredible glasses. <laughs> you, um, everything is so bright and in focus and the air is very dry it feels really silly to way to describe it, but it really does feel like you are on another planet. It's so different. And were you struck like Nell was by the colours and and the the intensity of colour? Well, like I was saying, it it took a couple of days for my eyes to to really get past the the otherworldliness of it and start to to really see it clearly. And every day is a little bit different as well. So, and hopefully you had uh, better kit than golf shoes when you. Were. Oh my goodness, we were so well <laughs> kitted out. And looking back now that I've I've had uh, both the experience of being in Antarctica and doing the research about Nell, I cannot help but giggle about the things that she thought she would need, like perfume. Like Nell took a couple of bottles of perfume, and I was like, "No, nope, deodorant. That's it." <laughs> so one of the the first tasks that you were set on this course was to build an emergency ice shelter. Please tell me how to do that. Should I ever find myself in that situation, Rachel? <laughs> what do I do? Well, you need a bit of baggage, so like so Nell would have been fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so what you do, you put all of your baggage into a big pile and um, try and make it as dome-shaped as possible and then you get your shovel and then you dig madly, <laughs> furiously piling um, ice on top of your baggage until, um, you know, until it's a, quite a, a thick layer of ice completely covering your your dome of baggage and then you compress it down just whack it with the with the shovel and and stamp on it and yep sort of make sure that it's all um, as compressed as possible and then you uh, you dig a little hole well a tunnel really sort of like a, a very in a shallow u shape and you dig down under and you come up hopefully um, inside the dome that you've <laughs> that you've um, compacted, and then you start pulling your luggage out through the tunnel that you've just created, 
and then that hollows it out. So you've got what looks like a, a very sort of like a ramshackle igloo, basically. <laughs> igloo. What genius. Yeah. What, a, what a great strategy, though. I mean, that just that seems a brilliant thing to do, to a, a brilliant way to approach it. So you pull out your, your luggage and then you've got your little hollow. And, and what was it like to sleep inside your, your ice cave? <laughs> well, that was one of the things that I think was the, um, you know, to make sure that we didn't do a half-assed job part of the training was that um, everybody had to spend a night sleeping inside their ice shelter. So um, that was, it was quite interesting because with, we're there in the, over the, um, uh, not just in summer, but we were there over the longest day. So in Antarctica, that means that the sun doesn't set. So you see the sun sort of do this big, lazy uh, loop in the sky but that also means that you've got to try and sleep when there's light and it, the light comes through the ice. So you've got to, um, while you're lying in the ice shelter, you, you have got to pull your, you know, like a, a your beanie down or I use my neck gaiter, you know, the, the, the tube of sort of polar fleece that you wear around your neck. Um, yeah, I put that on my head, pulled it down over my eyes to try and create a bit of artificial night so I could sleep. I but you, you but you still had, I still had to use sunscreen because, oh. yeah, sleeping in sunscreen because there's, it's still so light. That's just extraordinary. What a, what a different environment to have to sleep in. Tell me, what were you eating while you were out there on the ice? Well, we were eating packets of dehydrated food. Um, you know, you put water in them. We were using those old-fashioned primer stoves that they look like something out of the um, out of the nineteen thirties. They were sort of very, very old-fashioned. And, and, made me feel like I was on Mawson's expedition <laughs> or something using those stoves. Yeah, so I think that exactly the same sorts of dehydrated food that you use when you're going on a long-distance hike. And it was really funny because um, you're just, you're, you're so tired by the end of the day. Um, you know, we were, we were working really hard, expending lots of energy, and so we would make these, um, rehydrate our food, and I was eating it thinking, oh, this is delicious. Who knew that this sort of packet food could be, yeah, just so I, I, I'm <laughs> I'm going to tell my partner about this when we get home. This is ridiculously delicious. And then, um, yeah, when I got home and tried it, we're eating it thinking, oh, this is disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> what? The, the Why trick did, is to and, have an appetiser of like slaving away and freezing temperatures for hours beforehand. Oh, exactly. I remember reading that other expeditioners who have done, you know, um, transantarctic expeditions would eat blocks of butter and find them entirely delicious. So, yeah. One <laughs> Luckily, the, I didn't get that hungry. One yeah. of the things you were expending energy on was was hand digging a pit. Why did you have to do that and why did you have to do it by hand? Well, the course that we were doing um, was basically trying to give us a like a taster of what it would be like to do field work in Antarctica, sort of either as scientists or field assistants. So they we were given um, a whole uh, array of different uh, activities to do. So one of them was to was to dig a pit, and it was. Um, maybe three metres deep. We had to use ladders to get in and out of it. Um, one of the walls was a very smooth 
cross-section of the ice. And so we were looking at the stratigraphy, sort of the layering of the ice. So it was basically to give us an understanding of how through time, the um, year after year, uh, snow deposition and compaction sort of layers up. So when you slice down through it, you can see um, there's a bit of evidence about the the different uh, meteorological conditions, like how much snow fell in each year. And um, and some of the layers you could see that there had been, um, that winds had blown dirt and dust over, um, you know, because there's uh, very little dirt or dust in Antarctica. So if you if you saw a little layer there that looked like a sort of a pencil line of graphite, you knew that if you analysed it, it could be ash from fires in Australia or, mm. yeah, it was it was really, it's, um, yeah, it was fascinating. And it's it was sort of a, a analogous to um, you know, uh, climatologists doing uh, ice coring, but those ice cores go down... Um, kilometres into um, the polar plateau and each of those cores, yeah, you you could slice them and see the year after year, the um, the ice and snow deposition, but then uh, the climatologists also analyse the, um, uh, the air to see the different percentages of carbon dioxide and oxygen and other gases in the in the atmosphere. So it gives uh, climate data into um, yeah deep time. Mm. So that um, so this pit was sort of to give us an understanding of the layering and stratigraphy. So you were getting up close to ice. What about the wildlife? The sort of amazing array of of animals and birds that are, are there in Antarctica, which stole your heart. Uh, the, we had to do some uh, Weddell seal censusing. So basically just walking to the edge of the ice sheet and, and looking for um, Weddell seals. They that quite, were, are they easy to spot? Well, they're pretty big, yes. <laughs> and, and, um, and when they're on the ice, it's because they've just returned from, uh, from feeding and often travelling, um, you know, quite deep and, and great distances to, uh, to feed. So they're having a bit of a rest and they're really not interested in humans. And they have, oh, they're very, very sweet. You've probably seen photographs of them and they're the ones that... Um, they have a sort of resting smile face, basically. <laughs> their eyes are shut, but they look like they've got this um, their sweet, dreamy little grin on their faces there. Yeah, they're adorable. So how did that first trip to Antarctica change you, do you think? Well, it was while I was down there that I met a writer from New Zealand, uh, a novelist, uh, Lawrence Fernley. She was down there as an Antarctic Arts Fellow and Australia has um, a similar arts program. And at the time I'd, um, I'd started writing a little bit of poetry just as a, a hobby and uh, not taking it very seriously at all. But it was Lawrence who, she gave me a, a book by, uh, by Stephen Fry, The Ode Less Travelled, and because I had been, um, I'd been wanting to try and write about it, but finding it really challenging and difficult. So um, she gave me this book as a way of trying to um, encourage me to write a bit more poetry and use poetry as a way of um, of turning my experiences into creativity. Um, and I really just took to it like a duck to water. 
and I kept writing once I was home. So, yeah, it um, that that was a really potent connection to make down there, and eventually sort of um, had a big impact on changing the trajectory of of my career. Really, you made a second trip to Antarctica in 2013. This time on the Polar Pioneer. And this time you were heading to Western Antarctica, which means you had to go across the infamous Drake Passage. What was that like? I was so seasick that, oh, this is so embarrassing, I had to be sedated. Oh, you poor thing. <laughs> was that a surprise or did you know that, you you know, rough seas are not your thing? Well, um, I knew that I had a tendency to seasickness. Our family story is of my grandfather, who apparently could get seasick standing on the end of a jetty. <laughs> but I was a bit taken aback by, yeah, how um, how extreme my seasickness was. It was quite embarrassing. My husband, cast iron gut. He did not have, like, yeah, so while I was just you know, out for the count <laughs> on the bunk, he was um, enjoying every moment of it. So thankfully I have photos <laughs> of all the things that he saw, but I have no memory of that crossing whatsoever. Well, you were, well, you were <laughs> holed up in your cabin. So once you were well enough to actually come outside, what, what do you remember seeing? What struck you about that part of the continent? Oh, well, it was um, the phenomenal wildlife and the diversity of wildlife. So lots of different species of whales, uh, seals, leopard seals and Weddell seals and crab eater seals and um, and uh, penguins, so many different species of penguin. If you want to see wildlife, then going by sea to, to the West Antarctic Peninsula is um, is my recommendation. And there's also this sort of incredible human stories around this part of Antarctica too, isn't isn't this where Shackleton was stranded? Yes. Well, the the journey that I uh, the voyage that I was doing uh, was meant to be following in his footsteps. So you'd made these two mammoth journeys really to to Antarctica. But once you found out about Nell's story, Rachel, did that give you a, a different sense of the place or, or a different sense of human experience of Antarctica? How has her story, knowing it, shifted your views of Antarctica? Well, it made me very appreciative of the immense privilege of of going to Antarctica, considering that, you know, in my mother's lifetime, um, Australian women have been able to um, to go there, and the the vast the vast changes when you when you look at the different stations that are there now, basically within um, within half a century, looking at the the um, the world class facilities that are down there now. What do you think Nell and Phil Law would would make of the novel that you've written about them? Oh. <laughs> um, well, I think Phil appreciated how uh, trailblazing his wife was. He was he was definitely proud of her and the fact that she was the first Australian woman there. He was very keen for her diaries to be published. Um, was very proud of the uh, phenomenal artwork that she did down there. So I would hope that um, that they would be pleased that I was. Um, shedding a light on the life of, of an extraordinary and important woman in, in our history. Do you think you'll go back? 
I would love to go back <laughs> without a, without question. In a, in a heartbeat, I would love to go back. Uh, I'm also very aware that that it is a it's a vulnerable place. It may not be for the best for Antarctica if I go back. Um, I would need a very good reason to to do so. So I just need to work on coming up with one. <laughs> well, I hope if you do, you get to bring a copy of your novel and kind of show it to the place that Nell and Phil's ashes are interned. I think that would be only fitting. Oh, that would be lovely. <laughs> it's been really <laughs> fascinating to learn about Nell and to hear your story too. Rachel, thank you for being my guest on Conversations. Oh, thanks so much, Sarah. It's It's been an honour. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Kanoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations.